Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. What would happen if America's foremost cold case detective took the case of proving whether or not Jesus is who he says he is without the body of the New Testament? Well, that is the latest book by none other than Detective J. Warner Wallace in Person of Interest. And we just sat down with Jay, and I could not be more excited to share this interview with you. And I really hope you guys get a chance to take a look at this book because it has over 400 illustrations for guys who, like me, really need some help in the visual aid to understand things. So we are so excited right now to welcome Detective Jay Warner Wallace to the Good Fight Radio Show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yes, and as I said, I am beyond looking forward to this because I have been just enamored with a lot of the way that you present truth. I absolutely love it. It I, I've seen you speak live. I read Cold Case Christianity. And your latest book, Person of Interest, which we're going to talk about today, is, and I, and I feel almost guilty saying it, I actually fell more in love with it than I did Cold Case Christianity, which took a lot because I absolutely love that book. Uh, Pastor Joe Schimmel, he's the president of Good Fight Ministries. I know he even gave that book to his son. He loved that. And God's Crime Scene, you, you just, you're an excellent writer. I know you do a ton of stuff, but I'm excited to talk about this. But I guess before we talk about the book, the best way to start this is to simply ask how on earth you went from being a detective an atheist, and then now into a, a Christian and an apologist? Well, I think probably the Christian part was easier than the apologist part because you can't predict some of this stuff, right? You just, you don't, it's not like you have this goal when you start out. You just start experiencing it one day at a time. And and so I was somebody who was not even really curious about anything that had to do with God, but I was interested in smart people. So even as a high schooler, I remember I had a sociology teacher who was Baha'i, and he uh, said, hey, you should read the writings of Baha'u'llah. Now, I did read some of the writings of Baha'u'llah, not because I felt like this was true about God or that it was a God, just that I felt like, hey, if you've got ancient wisdom that has somehow been vetted and survived the passage of time, it might be wise, like, you know, fortune cookie wisdom, right? Like, why wouldn't you listen to ancient wise teachers, whether they're Greek or, or, or you know, Persian or any other of the faith systems or just have some stoic philosophy, whatever it may be. So when I first encountered Jesus uh, as a historical figure, it was just that I, I had a pastor at a church. And, and we had kids and I was already in my thirties and, and my wife was interested, you know, should we like raise our kids with a faith? You know, it seemed like it was kind of like, is that like one of those things we should do? And, and I didn't think that was necessary. I mean, I wasn't raised that way. So, but I was willing to go to church if she wanted me to go to church. So I went ahead and, and went with her and sat in the first church service. And this pastor pitched Jesus as a super smart guy who was the smartest guy who ever lived. And who had said all these wise things that had changed the world, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I, I thought, okay, well, let's see how smart this guy is. And we didn't own a Bible, but I went out and I bought a pew Bible. The city I went, 
shelf back here. And I started to like read through it to see what was so smart about Jesus. And really that was part of a process that I started to describe in cold case Christianity. But, you know, I'm like, I'm one of those guys who, who I'm a cumulative case guy. So all the cases I made in my career that were significant were cases we made by assembling a large body of evidence that all of these small disparate pieces uh, point to the, our suspect. Uh, and so you have a large body of, of work. And so it took me a while to assemble it. In other words, I would never have been convinced by any one thing just because I know the folly in that, right? Especially if you're working criminal cases, but you can be fooled. So I was always the kind of person who said, well, I've got to assemble a larger case for this. If it's going to be true, it'll hold up to all the different pieces. So this book really looks at all the stuff that's not in the crime scene. The stuff that's in cold case Christianity is the stuff that's in the crime scene. In other words, the stuff that's in the New Testament. But if you didn't trust the New Testament, and I didn't when I started, you're going to want to look at all the other stuff. If this is true, it should have you know permeated more than just the pages of the New Testament. It should have also had a huge impact. Wouldn't you expect if God was to enter into his creation, he would have a huge impact. And so that's what I would expect also. And that's what we're talking about in person of interest. No, and I, that's one of the things that I just loved while reading it. And one of the cool things is I've always noticed this uh, since I came to Christ. I came out of atheism as well. And it seems as though that God a lot of times will utilize those things that somebody is good at before they come to Christ and then use yeah. them for his glory. And I know for you. And one of the things I recognized right away when it came to reading this book is there are so many pictures. There are so many diagrams, so many things to, to look at. And I know that your background, I know you're obviously a cold case detective. I know you're still working on some yeah. cases, so I don't like to say you're retired, right? But um, well, I like to say I'm retired, but, <laughs> but it just seems like these things keep on popping up. So, so yeah, I, um, I definitely, in my view, in my mind, I'm doing this now. So that's kind of cool. Right. But yeah, I still consult on a couple of cases and we just finished one. So yeah, I get a chance to, t to tinker. I say, that's what I always tell my wife. No, I'm not working. I'm just tinkering. <laughs> well, you know what? Well, praise God for all the tinkering you've done. And when it comes to this, you didn't just start out. I know that uh, from your background as a detective, you also had something that I do believe is so such a, a vital, I guess, component of of person of interest is so many of the images and stuff comes from the background that you have that is outside of the detective work you've done. Yeah. So I, I thought, you know, growing up that I was interested in the arts and in music. And um, so I wasn't sure how to leverage that as a career. And so I got my bachelor's degree in design. I got a master's degree in architecture and I did a lot of drawing, you know, a lot of all, sometimes your skill as an artist or your skill as an illustrator is simply just a matter of how many miles you're willing to push the pencil. Right. And so the more miles you push your pencil, the better you probably are at pushing it. And so one of the things that I kind of like about a book is not just to think of it as the, the I mean, there's got to be an idea that you're trying to exercise with words and you're trying to express with words. But but in the end, I'm more actually concerned about the piece, the the entire work as um, an, a statement of art. So I'm very when I submit a book, I've already got ideas about how I want the page to set up, you know, how I want each page when you open it, where the illustrations ought to be. And when I submit the book, I submit it with the illustrations. And so when I get done, I kind of see the book as like um, like a piece of art. Um, and I've been able over the years to include more and more illustrations. You know, when you first started, when I first started, uh, the publishers weren't quite sure what to make of that. Um, there are illustrated apologetics books, right? I knew there was because I'd seen On Guard. 
from William Lane Craig. And I said, okay, so there's, there are, I should be allowed to have some illustrations, but this is different. This is, um, there's the book itself before you get to the case notes is probably around 250 pages or so. And um, there are 400 illustrations in those 250 pages. So that means we're going to be over illustrating, um, you know, each page is going to have sometimes two, one, two illustrations on it. And, and the whole goal with that was for me is that I'm a visual learner and juries are really visual learners. Um, so that this is something that I just learned to work in criminal cases. I just imported that background as an artist into my criminal work. And when you can kind of help a jury see that this, his involvement in this case is a parallel to some other like word picture, but you actually make it a picture picture, they can kind of see, oh yeah, this is to this as this is to that. And, and they can actually make the case quicker. So, so that's a lot of what I tried to import to this. So yeah, this is partly kind of part graphic novel. And we also tell a murder mystery. And then we also make the case for Jesus all in one book. Yeah. And that's one of the things that somebody asked me, they said, oh, so what was the book like? And I said, well, it's interesting because you're going through this this whole murder scene somewhat, all the, or murder case, I guess, all the way through. But you also get your testimony throughout it. You're getting all these graphics. And that's why I felt it so compelling while reading it. I was just like, well, I got to get to the next one. I got to get, get to the next one. I I usually will take a workout something before I go to the gym. And next thing you know, I'm like tingling, waiting to get in the gym. And I'm like, well, I got to get to the next page. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and it well, was so exciting. Know, and we learned some of that too, Chad, just from doing um, kids' books. I, and I hate to say it that way because I, I think kids' books are super important. Um, and I take them seriously when we've done three. And I take these seriously. Uh, but what I knew is that I wanted to create, in essence, a kids' book for adults that would read quickly um, that would be vis highly visual. You know, when you do children's books, you have a kind of a ratio, sometimes like one-to-one, -one, as much illustration as you have text. And so I really asked Zonervan, uh, would you allow me, number one, to build out the visual presentations for all these chapters before I started to write? And so they gave me two years to build this visually. Now, that, that, those are color presentations that I typically use on stage. But I had to then figure out how do I turn these into just line drawings because that have to be in the book. And that's what we've done. We've done 400 line drawings. Just absolutely incredible. It, it, it is a, a really a piece of artwork, as you said. It, it really is. I think all literature is uh, art, but in this case, you, you're really getting to see those visuals and they're so important. And I think the, the biggest thing you're bringing out there, and I think that what it gets over and over recycled for us to really understand is this idea of the fuse and the fallout. So maybe yeah. explain to the audience a little bit what on earth I'm talking about there. So when you have a no body murder uh, where someone has either killed a coworker or killed a part business partner or killed a spouse and then uh, destroyed the body and claim that that person just ran off. And I've had a, I've had a, th a few of these where uh, the husband has killed a wife and then claims that she got upset, had a fight last night. She drove off. She never returned. And uh, if they're convincing and if they can convince the, her family this is actually the case, well, then sometimes that'll actually help them get away with it because 
no one's alarmed that she's been missing for two weeks. And, you know, maybe she's somebody who had had, had in the past uh, taken off for a couple of days. So maybe she's somebody who they feel like, well, maybe she had a boyfriend. So they wait and they wait and they wait. And then when, by the time you actually end up working the case, you're way behind the time curve. You've never taken a photograph of the inside of the house on the first day it was taken as a missing person. Sometimes these people will be years will go by and they'll move and the house get remodeled. And now I've got no crime scene, no evidence from the crime scene and no body. So how do you make those kinds of cases? How do you investigate them and make them in front of a jury? Well, what we typically do is we tell the jury, jury that on the day this happened, if it is a murder, something explosive took place, like a bomb went off. And every bomb is preceded by a fuse, a fuse that burns slowly up to the detonation of the bomb. And afterwards, there'll be shrapnel all over the place. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to make a case and show you what was the fuse that was burning up to the actual day she went missing. And what's the fallout afterward, both of which we think if he's guilty, they will, the, these, the, the elements in the fuse and the elements in the fallout, those evidences we collect, they will point uniquely to him. And that's how we make a case and make it from the fuse and the fallout. And, and, and the same thing could be done if you didn't want to accept any of the evidence from the New Testament. If you said, you know what, that's, that's the evidence in the crime scene, but I'm not really, I don't trust it and I'm not interested in reading it. Well, there's actually enough evidence in the fuse and fallout of history to demonstrate that Jesus is everything he said he was in the in the uh, New Testament. So so I think that's what we try to do here. Is we're trying to show, hey, let me show you what was burning up in several categories of history before Jesus gets here and why it uniquely points to a small window of opportunity in which Jesus appears. And then let us show you how the things that matter most to atheists, you know, literature, music, art, education, science, all of those stand on the shoulders of Jesus and his followers because he had such a tremendous impact. And my, my concern is that young people, for the most part, are not being taught about the contribution of Jesus in these critical areas of culture. And even though you know you might have read about that or you might know about that, I, I'll bet you your Gen Z student has no idea that the history of science, for example, is so utterly dependent upon Jesus, the worldview he inaugurated, and the followers who, who, who claimed allegiance to him that uh, we would not know anything we know scientifically to the degree to which we know it had it not been for the oversized contribution of Jesus and his followers in the sciences. Look at the scientific revolution. You'll be hard pressed to find anyone of any significance in the scientific revolution who contributed as a father or a founder of any major scientific discipline who was not a Christ follower. Uh, why? Why is that a coincidence? Is that just, oh, people will say, that's just the way it was in, in Europe in the 17th century. Really? Okay, well, why is science exploding in Europe in the 17th century? Why isn't it exploding in, in Asia? Why isn't it exploding in Persia? Why isn't it exploding someplace else? Because there might be something about the, the worldview inaugurated by Jesus that acts as a catalyst for the sciences. And that's something I don't think our young people even know. And so that's why we need to spend time helping them to see why Jesus still matters. Now, and that's what I loved about Person of Interest, this brand new book by Jay Warner Wallace. In fact, I think it was just released maybe one or two days ago from this Yesterday, recording. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, just incredible, just such a wonderful book. And one of the things you bring out, and I remember reading, uh, just reading through my New Testament, even though you are using this as a case where you have no body, but in the New Testament, is specifically in Romans 5, 6, it says that while we were still helpless— at the proper, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And you already mentioned this a little bit in the buildup of the fuse and the fallout there. 
But what is it? What is it about time that Jesus had to yeah. come at that time for it to uh, make any sense, I guess? Well, you know, part of it is if you look at like suspects that, that that have an opportunity to commit a crime, typically sometimes there'll be preconditions in the fuse that need to be met. So let's say I'm going to, I want to you know, do this murder in a particular way, but I need the right weapon. Well, I'm not going to be able to do the murder until I first purchased the weapon. If I'm going to dispose of the body in a particular way and I need certain elements in order to do that, well, I'm not going to be able to start this whole process until I have those things in place as well. So there are sometimes preconditions that need to be met. And also there's this growing anger and tension that gives you a motive to do the murder. So these things are all happening in the fuse. And then of course, you often will have a deadline you're trying to work in front of. So let's say um, you've got some condition that I want to do this before the 1st of January. I want to do this before her father comes down and lives uh, and visits us. I, whatever those conditions are that set the timer so that I've got to work quickly and get this done before that time is met. So now I've got a window. Once the preconditions are met and before the deadlines, and that's the window in which she happens to go missing, well, duh, I can tell from the red zone that is that, that opportunity zone that's unique to you and her relationship that this is, and she happens to go missing in that zone. It looks pretty bad for you, doesn't it? Well, it turns out that there are preconditions in, in history that are being met. Even cult, simple cultural ones, for example, the message of Jesus explodes across the known planet, right? Because the Roman Empire happened to be in place. Roads happened to be in place. There was a 200-year uh, a period of peace in which the roads could be even further developed. And there was stability in the region that would allow for travel. There was a postal service that had come into place, one of the best ones in the ancient world. We had um, language, the Etruscan language, Etruscan alphabet had been adopted by Rome and as used across the empire and even the greek common language that was spoken was actually available now and the simple technology of papyrus you know go a couple thousand years before this you're not going to have the, the papyrus technology in which to write things down that will travel so the interesting thing about um, the, the kind of way these conditions seem to be coming into place is by the time we get to the first century if something like Jesus, someone like Jesus was to appear and the events that we talk about in the New Testament were actually to occur, well, now they can be communicated in a way that they could not be. Even the language and alphabet was such that the number of vowels were available. If you try to describe Jesus in his life with either pictographs or cuneiforms or many of the other alphabets that preceded the Etruscan alphabet, you'd have a hard time distinguishing between simple words like saw or so or because the vowels were available to you to make uh, large distinctions. And so this is why uh, those conditions have to be met. There's also a series of prophecies that are in place that kind of give you a window of opportunity. Daniel says that the Messiah will come before the temple is destroyed. That got destroyed in 70. You also have a series of, of, of ancient people groups that are worshiping mythologies that share broad characteristics that just so happen to be the broad characteristics that you would imagine as a human in the image of God, you would imagine these characteristics about God and then who personifies all of them? Jesus of Nazareth. But if you wanted to arrive at a time in which these ancient people groups are still actively worshiping their imaginary mythologies that happen to have broad uh, similarities, right? Because we are thinking about God and we are created in his image. Well, it turns out you want to arrive at a certain window also. When you start overlapping the windows, you end up with a period between about 29 BC and 70 AD that is an absolute ripe window of opportunity. And I show this in one of the chapters. It's one of those things that, you know, I can describe it, but until you see it on the timeline, 
and see why how it's constructed on the timeline. It's it's hard to to, to kind of pull back the veil and and really express the drama of it. But the reality is, as you layer this in the time that red zone opportunity gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you see that it runs from 29 BC to 70 AD, and who arrives right in the middle third of those 99 years? is Jesus of Nazareth. And he happens to live from the middle third to the third third of those, those he's right in the middle. And, and if you didn't know anything about what would cause our, our calendars to change, what would inaugurate the common era, um, you would at least know from that red zone that something's about to happen here. Um, and what's interesting about that is I, in the last chapter of the book, I, I kind of look at every single historical character, historical figure in the first century from world leaders to the poets, to the, the people who had um, large followings, the people who are, you know, whose, whose story has transcended the ages and here they are, they're still in our history books. And if you look at all of those and you put them all together, they don't have the impact of this peasant Jewish sage in a small corner of the Roman empire who had no stature, not a significant family, no money, uh, no a family of his own, no wife, no kids, Never wrote a book, never wrote a concert, never led an army, never ruled a nation, who was persecuted by the people who mattered, betrayed by the people who said they were his friends, who was unjustly, uh, you know, criticized unjustly and brutally mocked and murdered, and then has to borrow a grave in order to be buried. Yet this is the guy who inaugurates the common era. Forget about the fallout. We haven't even talked about that. But just that this is the guy in the first century around whom we orient our calendars, to me, is remarkable if he's just another guy. Of course, if he's if he's who he said he was, this would make total sense. <laughs> I love that. And and one of my favorite charts you actually have in there, and I saw it live on a presentation as well, and it had a little more, you know, and obviously little sparkles can't come out of any bombs yeah. or anything like that. But when you talk about this idea of the copycat saviors, right? Because I've heard it. I mean, Bill Maher in Religious in that movie, I think right. at the end, towards the end, he starts bringing this up. There's things like Zeitgeist or all these different things that Jesus is just merely the copycat of all one of these pagan gods or, or Mithra yeah, or whatever exactly. it is. And your chart actually goes through every like major, you know, I, I guess copycat, so to speak, that he could have taken from. But you take an entirely different approach. And I thought that was pretty awesome, too. Well, I don't know why we would expect uh, imaginary notions of God. If, if, if you'll see this, I even show this in the book, how even contemporary atheists will imagine worldview scenarios, including the worldview scenario that thinks that the entire universe is a computer simulation. But when they map that out, how that could be, they end up, end up they just can't, they can't help but find themselves in metaphysical notions of supreme powers ruling over the universe and creating the universe from nothing. You end up in God talk, even if you start to philosophize about this as, as a computer simulation. Now, it, why would we be surprised that any group of people, considering that the vast majority of people on planet Earth, even today, uh, hold some view of a higher power? And you might say, well, they're all got different views. Well, yeah, you probably, they probably are. But if you look at them, they all bear certain similarities. If there is a God who is beyond space, time, and matter, people mostly expect that he's going to enter into creation in a weird way if he does. 
uh, if he's created us as he's created everything else, people sometimes expect that he will somehow try to interact with us. If he's uh, there's a God such as this who transcends time, people imagine that he can probably defeat death because he transcends time. I mean, these are things that are quite general. Uh, he's going to enter a certain way. He's gonna, probably can perform miracles, for example. He can probably bend the, what we call the laws of nature. Well, why would you be surprised that people kind of imagine this power if there is a higher power? Uh, these are very common um, notions and very common expectations that every people group has, whether they're modern or ancient. And so the ancient mythologies often possess some of these attributes. And if you want to argue that somehow Jesus borrows these attributes, well, you haven't studied the attributes all that well, because while the, 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 the categories are broad, uh, the God is going to enter into creation in an unnatural, supernatural way. Okay, well, one's coming out of the side of a thigh of a God. One comes out of the side of a mountain. Uh, Jesus is born of a virgin. If you really want to argue that somehow this is borrowed, well, what you have is the common expectation of the ancients. And by the way, I charted these out. They don't all possess these common expectations. There are somewhere between six and 10 of these expectations are present in each ancient mythology until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. And there you have all 15 expectations in their fullness. And what's interesting about that is, and C.S. Lewis kind of puts it this way, uh, C.S. Lewis says that basically Jesus is the one true myth. Now he uses the word myth, not as a false story, he uses the word myth as a, a narrative about deity. And he says that the ancients have bore uh, false myths that came from their imaginations. And Jesus is the true myth who is the mind of God. And, and this is, this is I think, a, an excellent way of interpreting the evidence, because if you have examined the evidence, you'll see, number one, they aren't all that similar. And number two, the, the fact that God would enter into his creation Meeting the expectations of humans who are designed in his image should not surprise you. As a matter of fact, um, when the expectors have expectations that are met by the expected, the response is generally pretty good. And that's why you'll see that. Uh, and by the way, if you're, if you're arguing that somehow the, the Jewish uh, fiction writers of the New Testament Gospels, they're lying about Jesus. They created him whole cloth from prior mythologies in an effort to convince Jews that he's the Messiah, well, then I think you're going to want to avoid all pagan connotations. But if you're saying, no, I've cobbled together from all the pagan mythologies the God that you should expect as a Jew, I think that's a harder sell. And so I just think in the end, uh, this is part of the timing of God who arrives in the fullness of time at a point in which the most number of existing mythologies are out there and being used and worshiped by, by ancient people groups so that when God shows up, as Paul says in Acts uh, 17 on Mars Hill, he can be, we can expose those worshipers to the one true God. And that's what uh, Paul is doing. Well, that's exactly the, the time in which to show up, which would be, again, if you look at that red zone, you're going to find that that first century is a good time to arrive. Yeah. And it's, it's really amazing when you think about it. And just when you think back logically, you're, you're thinking of these Jewish men writing as if they, like, you had to research this. You yeah. had to go, you can Google it, you can look it up, you can go through encyclopedias, yes. but for some reason they had this vast knowledge of every pagan myth and they were able to, you know, cobble it together to meet the requirements of this person, Jesus. It's just so outlandish, but it actually is very popularized. You see it on the internet yeah. all the oh, time. absolutely. And you see it on absolutely. the streets if you share the gospel all the time and it's like, 
Come on, guys. The, the, this is no and that's good. That's why I think we have to have a, a better view of, and again, if this is true, um, it will uh, hold up to scrutiny. Um, and so, I, you know, if it is true. And so I think it's worth us you know, discovering if it's true, because it'll help us to, to know where to look for answers, right? Uh, but I'm not, I think that it, for the most part, I, you, you have to be a little bit, not ignorant of, but a little bit either deceived in terms of what the mythologies actually state, right? I mean, even when people draw the closest analogy they possibly can to the person of Jesus, they are usually looking at some small niche scholarship that is not the not the, the common scholarship on that particular deity. It's somebody who might have actually a dog in the race where they're trying to 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 um, make a case for similarities because that's the purpose of their book to begin with. So it doesn't, you know, so again, this is not something that for the most, but do you honestly think that that, that, that that we would discover these things as, as late in history as this stuff has been written about, as if no one ever knew that there are these common expectations of the deities prior to this, these come, these have always been common. Um, so uh, to me, I was, I was never, that never as an investigator, because uh, I remember, you know, I had more, I knew more about the, the, the pagan mythologies as a 35 year old than I knew about Jesus. Because, you know, when you go through school and a lot of art uh, is, does involve Christian art, but a lot of art is in other uh, parts of the world that you study in art history, especially ancient. I was always interested in ancient art history. Um, you know, the pyramids, things like that, right? That stuff is always, and also just how human forms are drawn in, in antiquity. And how at some point someone figures out how weight is shifted through your skeleton from the, from to, the, to, the, to the ground. And, and you'll see how now you have depictions of humans that are actually more realistic. So I used to love this kind of stuff. And I was far more familiar with the depictions of art from pagan mythologies than I was with Christianity. So I knew that there were some similarities in the pagan mythologies. And, and, but it never that never like shook me. It was never the kind of thing I thought, oh, here's another you know, mythology in a long line of mythologies. Because Jesus is significantly different in every category, although he does meet the broad expectations. No, I think that's a, a great point. And one of the things, and I would say probably my favorite chapter, probably for most people who haven't thought about this deeply, because I've always wondered, you know, in the apologetics field, you know, God says in Isaiah 46 really clearly that you can tell he's different than these false gods because he can tell the end from the beginning. So I always saw apologetics and I'm like, come on, why, why isn't there more prophecy? And I do think when you kind of go into this and it really makes a lot of sense, I think from your detective background and you start talking about clear and cloaked evidence and then applying that to clear and cloaked prophecy, yeah. I thought this is the best, My that's my personal favorite chapter that you really dig into that. So maybe you could explain that to people that are listening. Well, I recently had someone reach out to me from a ministry that I'm pretty familiar with that I've worked with quite a bit, who was working on the staff of that ministry, who is kind of deconstructing his faith. And one of the things that's shaking him is that he feels like the authors of the New Testament have manipulated the prophecies in a way and have read them in a, in a way in a certain context that he does not think were represented by the initial writers in the Old Testament in order to make Jesus sound like the Messiah, where he's looking at prophecies that he would argue, hey, for the ancient Jews would not even have looked at some of those prophecies as messianic. Yet here you've got a gospel writer who's arguing this is describing Jesus. And it, it shook him and it bothered him. 
Now, how I always describe this is that in any crime scene, okay, you're going to have two kinds of evidence. You're going to have evidence that's cloaked and evidence that's clear. Clear evidence is like a fingerprint. If you've got a big database of fingerprints or like DNA, if you've got a really good database and of DNA, which we don't really have that great of a database, but, but we do have some, it's getting better every year. But if you had a database that had everybody in it, let's say, and then I find DNA at the crime scene, well, I would know who the killer is before I ever knock on his door. I'm going to identify that from the clear evidence in the crime scene that identifies the killer before I meet him from the onset. Now, the other kind of evidence you'll find in crime scenes is stuff like a button torn from someplace. Let's say there's a button lying on the floor. And you're wondering, was that button there before the crime even occurred? Did that button come off something that belonged to the victim? I don't see anything here. Did the button come off the suspect? Now, you won't really know that until you knock on the door of a suspect who's identified later. And if you knock on that door and do a search warrant, you find he's got a shirt with a missing button and all the other buttons match this one that's missing and you happen to have that at the crime scene. Well, now that piece of evidence that you weren't sure what it meant to begin with will connect your killer to the crime scene after the fact, not from the onset, but in hindsight. So that's the difference, right? Is it from the onset or is it in hindsight? That's the difference between clear and cloaked. Now, it turns out that you shouldn't be surprised then that some prophecies are clear and they should identify Jesus of Nazareth. But there are going to be a bunch of prophecies that are cloaked. And only after you identify Jesus of Nazareth could you compare the button to his shirt and see if it matches. But if you wouldn't exclude the button from your crime scene. You wouldn't say, hey, now I'm willing to do that for sake of argument here. If all we did was look at the clear prophecies in the Old Testament and toss out, and that would be tossing out a lion's share of prophecies that are cloaked that the New Testament authors use in the New Testament. But just for the sake of argument, I would be willing to throw those out just so we could say, okay, can we still make a case for Jesus? Of Yeah, you could. No doubt about it. I do that in the book. But we should be allowed then to look at those cloaked pieces of evidence in the crime scene to see if they match Jesus's shirt. And of course they do. And that should give you greater confidence, right? And it's not out of bounds to use cloaked evidence. That's what the gospel authors are doing. But it's not as though Jesus didn't give you way more evidence than you need to know he's the Messiah and that the clear prophecies don't describe him well enough. It's just that they are including both clear and cloaked prophecies to make the case even stronger. And that's, I think that to me, that doesn't shake me either because I, I realize, but I will tell you, I was never impressed by Bible prophecy. Never. And here's why. I always felt like people who were talked about this from the stage or from the pulpit didn't make that distinction. They made no distinction between clear or cloaked. And I needed to know. Because if I'm, I was a new new believer, or uh, actually, I, I wasn't even a believer yet, and I'm sitting in church. Yeah, that's right. I was sitting in church, and and I remember a couple times this happened. Once right before I became a Christian, and once right after. And I felt like that was not a fair assessment of of the um, prophecies. Like especially before I became a Christian, I told I remember telling Susie, "This doesn't even. This is not. How could you even think that was messianic? I mean, I don't even know. I mean, let's go read the context in the Old Testament." Would anybody reading this hundreds of years before Jesus arrived think to themselves, oh, this is a description of the Messiah? I don't think so. It was cloaked. And so that it, that shook me, right? Because the, the, the speaker was acting as though all of it's clear. And then when I actually like write down the verses and I get into the scriptures, I'm like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> so. So I just needed to be able to separate those two things. And now once you do separate those, the case is really strong. You can see why the case is strong. And this is why I never, for example, use um, 
percentages, you'll see some people say, well, what's the percentage chance that Jesus would match all of these? No, look at, look at it this way. Let's go to all the clear prophecies. They identify somebody. The cloak prophecies confirm him. So if you said of all the people on planet Earth, how many people would would match these prophecies and i just work backwards right born of uh you know uh, born of david the king uh, the lineage of king david well that would include a lot of people but some would be eliminated so as you as you kind of whittle down through those prophecies and eliminate more and more people that don't match the prophecies you're going to end up with one person in the history of persons and it's going to be jesus of nazareth and that's the approach that i take rather than say well you know if you've got 365 prophecies the odds of how many people have lived on the planet earth what are the odds of one person you know i'm not going to go there because i've separated those prophecies out anyway i would not consider all 300 plus prophecies to be clear so i've got to separate out the clear from the cloaked and now let's just see what, what the picture looks like with just the clear and then we'll add the cloak back later no, I love that. And I love that distinction for so many people that maybe they do go back and they read, maybe they're reading Psalm 2 and they're like, okay, wait, what? What's going on here? And not recognizing, as you said, one is pointing, the clear is pointing directly towards somebody who's going to come. And the cloak is something that we find out later, specifically, like, as you said, with the New Testament, it explains right. back, oh, here, you know, they quote Zechariah 12.10, for example, the one whom they've pierced and so forth. So the, right. these are really good distinctions. We're talking with Detective J. Warner Wallace about his brand new book, Person of Interest. And it is such a such a great book. And I know we've already gone through a ton of stuff, but a lot of this is getting us to the place of the red zone. So we've been dealing with this fuse going forward that there was just this small portion of time, I mean, relative to, you know, to other portions of time, but this small portion of time where the Messiah would have to come where this messianic figure would have to come, and that's the red zone. But I want to deal more in the second half now with what is called the fallout. So after you have the fuse leading up to Jesus coming, and then the fallout, because you're trying to make this case explicitly without what we would call the body, right? That body and the New Testament. And so now going forward, let's say, boom, we've met the red zone what is now the fallout and the immediate fallout of the person Jesus? And can you really make any real understanding of who he is by what happens after he comes on earth? Yeah. And so for me, I knew that I wanted to do two things. Number one, I wanted to look at the magnitude of impact, the oversized impact that Jesus had, because he really has no right to make this kind of impact, yet he does. And two, I asked the question, from that impact, can I reconstruct the story of Jesus? So I'm not, there's lots of other areas of global impact that Jesus and his followers have had. But I was only interested in those that left fingerprints that would actually identify Jesus by his nature, by uh, that would, I could reconstruct the story from the Gospels. So if I lost all of the Gospels, but I had this part of human history in place, I could reconstruct the influencer, the one person who's responsible for this impact. And so I was looking for just those areas that would help me to rebuild the case for Jesus. And I, it turns out that the five areas that I would have thought were the most important as an atheist are five of the areas where Jesus had the deepest impact. So I was somebody who would have said, hey, you know, as an artist, it would have been like literature, art, music, education, science. These are the things that were of value to me as a non-believer. And it turns out all of those areas are so deeply indebted to Jesus and his followers that from those historic epic 
pieces of human culture, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus in its entirety. So you'd have to destroy the history of those five attributes of human culture in order to get rid of the story of Jesus. That's the kind of fingerprint, that's the kind of debris that is in the common era that is caused by the explosion known as Jesus of Nazareth. So I'll just give you one of these just to kind of make it clear because there's a bunch of these and there's no way we're going to have enough time I can see here to, to go through all of them. But I'll just give you one that is probably the most shocking and I've written about in a book, uh, chapter on science is that it turns out that if you were to chart the growth of scientific investigations, the growth of historically known scientists over time, that you would have a chart that eventually would explode at the scientific revolution when all the major scientific disciplines were established in a 200-year period of time. And if you were to look, and so the chart shows you about how many scientists are starting to get involved in these endeavors. And now where does Jesus fall in that historic timeline. Well, it turns out he falls right before the growth curve. Now, that might just be a coincidence, or it might be that Jesus is a catalyst for this kind of activity, because the worldview he inaugurates acts as an igniter. And I talk about several reasons why that is the case. While the, the Christian worldview, in replacing other worldviews that existed at the time, set the table for the examination of the natural world. And this used to be called natural philosophy before it was ever called science. And now, of course, we call it science. And if you look at the history of science, you'll see that um, and we just discovered this by accident. I just wanted to make originally um, as robust a list as I could of significant historic Christ followers who were involved in scientific uh, disciplines. So I had a, a research assistant. We just started barreling through the history of humans to figure out the history of science. And it's not easy sometimes anymore to identify people who have a Christian identity because a lot of sources for this material have kind of scrubbed out the Christian identity part. Like that's not important to them for whatever reason, not necessarily that they're biased against Christians. Sometimes it's just not the focus of their work. So you wouldn't even know that this contributor was, was a Christ follower. But so we, we know we're only getting the tip of the iceberg here. Okay. But we identified about 950 um, scientists over the course of history. And if then we started to notice that when they were described, they would often be described as the father of a discipline. And I wish I would have discovered it or thought about looking for it earlier because we got about halfway through this investigation before we realized that we need to go back and we need to make sure we know how many of these are fathers of these uh, disciplines. So you'll see I have a list and you know this book this book has a like a 300 pages of case notes most of them are in a PDF file because that's there's more pages of case notes than there are words in the book uh, there are pages in the book. So so we knew we had to kind of push that off to a PDF file, and that's available as a link once you buy the book, or the thing would be twice as big as it is. So, But we have in the case notes, you'll see the complete list of all of the science fathers and all the scientists, period, and how they contributed. And what's interesting about that is that um, every major discipline, if it's astronomy or chemistry or all the way to quantum mechanics or computer sciences, all kinds of, I mean, it's not just limited to ancient times. It's not just limited to the scientific revolution. More Nobel Prize winners in the sciences have been Christians than all the other groups combined. And as a matter of fact, it's not even close. So if you look at the history of science, it is replete with Christ followers who contributed and the number of disciplines that were established by Christ followers. That list is just unbelievable. If you read it, you're going to, it's like, it's, it's mind blowing. So, so the, here's what's interesting about that. These Christ followers who were in, deeply involved in the sciences 
all the way up into modern times, saw no rub between the, their, their scientific discoveries and the existence of a God who could interact in his creation and, and actually even perform miracles and rise from the dead. They didn't see these as two mutually exclusive endeavors, as two mutually exclusive ideas. Instead, they saw harmony between these two things. And in their personal journals, they write about Jesus of Nazareth. They don't just have notes about their scientific discoveries. They also make notes about Jesus because they're all Jesus. I mean, they're Jesus followers. And you could reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the journals and private writings of the most significant scientists in the history of science. In order to scrub Jesus from the collective memory of humans, you'd have to also destroy the history of science because so many uh, scientists are Christ followers who wrote about him privately. And the most robust reconstruction of the Jesus story you could ever do you will do from the pens of not the church fathers, the science fathers, because those folks write about Jesus a lot. Oh, that's what I, I love, because we're so used to hearing about the church fathers. And you do go into the church fathers as well in the book. So I'm not going to you know push that aside. But when I saw the word science fathers, that kind of threw me for a loop because I'm like, well, no one talks about that. You know, we're always talking about the church fathers and, you know, maybe a million quotations in the early church of you know, of the New Testament and so forth. Right. And you talk about specifically that in the church fathers, we can put together the story of Jesus very, very easily. And and I don't think anyone would really doubt that. But one of the things that you talk about also is the truth in slander. And I remember even as a, a younger believer reading Celsus and seeing that, right. wow, the story of Jesus being put together by the people that hate him. And <laughs> I found that so right. interesting. And I love that idea of the truth in slander. So I'd love for you to kind of, you know, ferret yeah, that out Celtus a little bit. is an ancient non-Christian voice that is recovered from ancient manuscripts. And so if you were just to Google Celsus and go to his Wikipedia page, you'll see that uh, people who um, will, will write about Celsus and what he described about Christianity went in a dialogue with the, a, a church father named Origen. So he's back and forth in dialogue about this, and you can kind of capture a picture of Jesus as described by Celsus, a non-Christian. So I was interested in the voices that existed before Christianity became the religion of the empire. Because let's face it, I think most of us would say that somehow often power can corrupt ideas, can corrupt notions. People will leverage and change stories in order to um, you know, kind of uh, utilize, weaponize even uh, people like Jesus can be weaponized by a culture that wants to do that. So I was only interested in the writings that existed that described Jesus before uh, Christianity became the empire's religion. So I'm looking for those writings that preceded the Edict of Milan and preceded the Edict of Thessalonica. So that that way there, you're, you're kind of recovering data about Jesus from that period of time when there was persecution and then some tolerance, and depending on who the emperor was, uh, persecution again. And so that's a time when people are on the run, and the story is going to probably be in its purest form. And so I only looked at those voices that existed before about 325 AD. And I looked at not just the Christian voices. There were lots of categories. And I kind of make a parallel to this, to the story of Elvis. Elvis Presley, when he died, he created a firestorm of literary uh, engagement. I mean, people wrote about Elvis from about every angle you could write about Elvis. And over the last, what has it been, 40 years or so? Yeah. 
40 years plus, uh, at least one to sometimes 10 books a year have been written about Elvis. And as we get further and further away from the life of Elvis and the people who knew Elvis personally are all dying, uh, the stories about Elvis can be a little bit more uh, difficult to fact check. And so you have three groups who will write about Elvis. You'll have Presleys who who liked Elvis. You have non-Presleys who didn't didn't you know who also liked Elvis. They, but they're non-Presleys. They're not like family members or people who knew him well. And then you have people who are not. They're non-Presleys who didn't like Elvis. Uh, they are now, and those people are usually writing later in time, and they're trying to sensationalize the story of Elvis. But here's what's interesting about that. If you just took all of those books about Elvis, you could find that they all stand on core true claims about the life of Elvis, from which they all start to kind of shoot off in different directions and rabbit trail and start to create mythologies. But they will all basically have to recite and stand on the truth elements related to the Elvis story. Well, the same thing kind of happens with Jesus, right? We have Christians who liked Jesus. We have non-Christians who like Jesus. The non-canonical gospel authors, for example, these are not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. They don't hold to any of the Christian claims related to theology or the nature of Jesus. They often will twist the story of Jesus for their own theological purposes. So you wouldn't say they were Christians by a theological definition, but they certainly were people who liked Jesus. And then you have a bunch of people who were non-Christians who didn't like Jesus. Greek, Roman, Persian, Egyptian, you name it, Jews. Uh, there's a bunch of different voices in those first 300 years. I thought, let me collect all of them, all three categories, and let's find out what are the core beliefs, the core claims that people stand on in each category, in each group, in order to make a case either for Jesus or against him. And if you look at that, you're going to find, number one, there are more non-Christian voices in the first 300 years from which we can gather data than there are Christian voices in the first 300 years from which we can get, gather data. And you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from all three of those groups. Um, and they all, they all basically begin with core common claims, and then they distort those claims in one direction or another if they're the non-Christians in the groups. So, so in the end, yes, you can use literature. And it's not just that. It's that Jesus still today is the most written about historical figure of all historical figures. It's not even close. And if you use the Library of Congress as your data guide or if you use Google Books as your data guide, either way, Jesus still leads the pack. Not only that, that fiction characters, uh, screenplays, uh, video games are all sometimes borrowing from the, the rough outline of the Jesus story and what has now been, uh, been kind of identified in literary criticism as Christ figures. So a lot of the, the, the fiction, you, you might, if, once you start to see my list, I mean, like an entire list for you to take a look at, you'll start to recognize, oh yeah, you know, that, that, that's true. That is, that dude is like Jesus in this, uh, look at Marvel comics, for example, any, any of the Marvel movies, you'll see that notions of Jesus are abound, especially from the Superman figures all the way down. As a matter of fact, our good friend, Frank Turek has got a book coming out next next spring on uh, on how many of the uh, superhero characters actually are borrowing from the Jesus story. So so this this is the kind of impact that Jesus has had on literature. No other historical figure has had that kind of impact. No one is saying, hey, you know what? There's Abraham Lincoln figures. <laughs> you know, this is not happening. It's it, the Christ figures are a unique paradigm, a unique kind of literary device that you see over and over and over again, because he's had that kind of impact. And you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from literature. Yeah. And I thought one of the interesting things, you actually went through all of the top artists, not all of, but quite a few of the top artists and showed all of them make some sort of reference either for, against, or just benign, you know, so to speak, 
uh, about the person of Jesus. And so yeah. when you when you talk about fallout, I mean, really, really, when you talk about fallout, we're talking two thousand years, and it's still no, going. No the top the top artists are still talking about him, whether they like him or not. But the yeah, the reality is they're still talking about him, and that's really interesting. And one of the things that you also went into is academia and the fact that a lot of people, you know, today are like, hey, man, we got this CRT stuff coming into the school systems. And, you know, I, you know, I homeschool my kids. My wife was homeschooled. I was a public school kid. Uh, but but nonetheless, you have this sort of situation where people are like, look how terrible academia is. But you yes. show also in the book that it didn't really start that way. Yeah, let me let me just end with that because I think that's the, the area of 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 impact that's also surprising. If the top look, all of the modern universities we know today were started by Christ followers. It all came out of a movement in the cathedral schools, preceded in the monasteries. And the top three universities, the first three modern universities as we know universities today, are in Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. And from those, if you were to Google the top fifteen universities in the world today, you would find that all of them were started by Christians, even though they may today deny the impact of Christianity, but they were started by Christians. If you just visited those campuses from the initial buildings from which they taught students, you will find the images and inscriptions from which you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the buildings and the charters of each campus. That's the kind of impact that Jesus has had on history. You could reconstruct him just from the campuses of universities. You'd have to destroy those universities to destroy the evidence for Jesus and culture. And that's when you look at it, honestly, Chad, that's why I knew that in the end, if our young people just know how much they, what the, what they take for granted was caused by this person of interest known as Jesus of Nazareth. I think you would at least have to argue that Jesus still matters. His work still matters. His influence still matters. Even if you aren't a Christian, even if you're not somebody who would trust the gospels that describe Jesus to begin with. And that's just the nature of his impact. And I think that's only attributable to the fact that he is not just another person of interest. God incarnate who steps into his creation would have that kind of impact. And that's exactly what you see. Oh, man, there could be a better way to finish up this interview than with that, because that's the reality of it. And that is what you get to read about in Person of Interest, Jay Warner Wallace's latest work. And, I, you know, I, I would feel, uh, I guess, amiss if I didn't mention also, as I did in the beginning, Cold Case Christianity. I believe that book is monumental when it comes to the apologetics field. I think that what you do in laying out the case for Christ in that regard now I'm stealing from another book title, but laying out the case for Christ in that regard, and then here as well, with or without the New Testament, I think you've done just a wonderful work for the body of Christ. I encourage everyone to check it out. So I want to thank you, Jay, for joining the Good Fight Radio Show. Thanks so much for having me, Chad. I really appreciate you. All right. And thank you guys for sharing with us. Make sure you guys go on out and check this book out. I would love for you guys to be encouraged by it. And God bless. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.